Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk again about Sudan. What hope is there that talks in the Saudi city Jeddah can bring relief to Sudanese caught up in the violence? And almost a month into the fighting, how likely is it that foreign powers get sucked in? After weeks of fierce fighting that's killed hundreds and pushed Sudan to the brink of collapse, hopes for progress as the heads of the two warring sides send their envoys to Saudi Arabia for talks aimed at firming up a shaky ceasefire. Meetings are due to begin today in Jeddah and will be the first negotiations since fighting broke out last month. As most of our listeners will know now, the fighting, which is concentrated in the Sudanese capital Khartoum, pits the army, led by General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, against a former allied paramilitary unit, the Rapid Support Forces, led by Mohammed Hamdan Dagala, or better known as Hameti. The Rapid Support Forces, the RSF, seemingly now control much of the city. The army shelling RSF positions, including in residential areas. The two sides are battling over places like the presidential palace, military bases. Millions of residents are still trapped. Supplies often hard to come by. There's also been fighting in Sudan's western Darfur region, particularly around Al-Janina and West Darfur. As we just heard, this past week, talks have started between representatives of the army and the RSF, hosted by Saudi Arabia and the US in the Saudi city of Jeddah. This is US Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Nuland. If this stage is successful, and I talked to our negotiators this morning who are cautiously optimistic, it would then enable expanded talks with additional local, regional, and international stakeholders towards a permanent cessation of hostilities and then a return to civilian-led rule as the Sudanese people have demanded for years. U.S. officials may be cautiously optimistic and, in fact, on Friday the 12th of May, after we recorded the two interviews you'll hear today, the two parties did sign a declaration of principles on protecting civilians. In reality, though, there's little sign they're going to stop fighting anytime soon, let alone hand over power to civilians. Repeated ceasefires have broken down. The army in particular seems bent on destroying the RSF. Politicians and other civilian leaders in Sudan are angry that the talks include only representatives of the two men whose standoff has brought such disaster to the country. So today we've got a two-part episode. In a moment, we're going to talk to Alan Boswell, Crisis Group's Horn of Africa director, about what's happening in Jeddah what Washington says about the talks and about the regional and international politics of the crisis. First, though, I'm happy to be joined by Shawid Waldemikhail, Crisis Group's Sudan expert, to talk a bit more about what's happening in Sudan itself. Shawid, welcome back on. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for having me. So, Shawid, could you start then just by talking a bit about what the fighting looks like this week in Khartoum? Well, a number of people in Khartoum have said that the fighting yesterday was the most intense since the conflict started. The fighting continues to be most concentrated in the greater Khartoum area, particularly in Bahri and Umdurman, which are the two twin cities of uh, Khartoum proper. The army seems to be trying to cut off RSF supply lines into Khartoum and retake strategic sites. But the RSF has taken control of homes, either when their residents left to find refuge from the conflict or forced homeowners to leave. While the RSF is using residents as human shields, the army has been shelling indiscriminately. In this urban warfare, millions, millions are caught in the crossfire and the city is being destroyed. 
Do we know, roughly speaking, who controls what in the capital? We know that Khartoum proper, most of the areas are controlled by the RSF, while the two armies are fighting for Omdurman and Khartoum. So they are also fighting over strategic sites like the palace. You know, the airport is definitely under the control of the army. But other sites, there is back and forth uh, on who controls what. The army is shelling, as you say, RSF supply lines, warehouses, places that the RSF controls. But is the fighting sort of street to street or is it mostly that the RSF control the areas and the army is just bombarding? The army has been bombarding mostly while the RSF is trying to bring down their planes using ground-to-air missiles. So that, that has been the trend of the conflict since the beginning. There isn't much face-to-face fighting. So last time we spoke a few weeks ago on the podcast, we talked about people in Khartoum being stuck in their homes, drinking water, food, medical supplies running out. So the two representatives of the two men, as we heard up top of Al-Burhan and Hameti, they have been now meeting this week in Jeddah to talk about opening up humanitarian access, getting supplies into the city. Have things got any easier for Khartoum residents and can people get out of the city if they want to? Life in Khartoum and other conflict-affected areas is extremely difficult. It hasn't been easy getting supplies to the city, so food and drinking water is not easily available. People are running out of cash as the banks are not in service. It's extremely difficult to access healthcare. Many healthcare centers have either been shelled by the army, occupied by the RSF, or have simply run out of supplies. Those who have their means are leaving the city. Most are going to Egypt or Port Sudan on their way to Saudi Arabia. Others went to their relatives outside of the city. Chad and South Sudan and to a lesser extent Ethiopia have also received those fleeing the conflict. It has been almost impossible to deliver humanitarian aid as fighting continues and humanitarian agencies fear uh, for the safety of their workers. It has been Sudanese themselves that have been helping each other in any way they can. For the first time since the conflict started, the International Committee of the Red Cross delivered humanitarian aid, including medical supplies, last week. It has been volunteers for the Sudanese Red Cross and Society who are providing first aid in clinics, but they also have very, very limited supply. You know, since the conflict started, around 600 people have been killed. It's very difficult to say how many more have been injured. I mean, until the Red Cross and Society started collecting bodies, we've seen Khartoum littered with dead bodies. It's a very desperate situation. And there have been ceasefire agreements, but those have been mostly ignored. Now, Martin Griffiths, the the head of the UN Humanitarian Affairs, has arrived in Sudan. I hope his presence will lead to more aid flowing into the country. But clearly, for that to happen, both the army and RSF need to respect the ceasefire agreements. And so far, many have broken down. Both the army and RSF have violated these ceasefire agreements. Both accuse each other for violating the agreements. The army says that the RSF is using ceasefires as part of its conflict strategy to reposition forces, to redeploy enforcements, and resupply troops. The army also says that 
the RSF has lost command and control of its forces multiple times, and its troops continue fighting when, you know, its leader, Hemeti, basically has agreed to a ceasefire. The RSF also makes similar claims that, uh, you know, there are multiple centers of power within the army and that those taking part in ceasefire negotiations, particularly Burhan, is not the one controlling troops on the ground, which is why the army never stops fighting, despite, you know, agreeing to ceasefires. The RSF has also accused the army of getting support from Islamist militias that are affiliated to the former NCP party, who are unwilling to stop fighting. That was um, the NCP, that's the National Congress Party, that's uh, former President Omar al-Bashir's party. Exactly, exactly. So both the army and the RSF are agreeing to ceasefires because of external pressure. Otherwise, they seem determined to continue fighting, regardless of, you know, of the high costs of this conflict. So far, neither the army nor the RSF has demonstrated superior military capability. So there doesn't seem to be a military solution to the conflict, at least in the near future, though both are claiming that they're making progress in defeating the other. Do we know much about these reports of fighting in parts of Darfur? Do you have much information about what's happening there? So outside of Khartoum and many places in Sudan, that have in the beginning witnessed some sort of conflict are now relatively stable, including Kasala, uh, Gadar, Red Sea, and Blue Nile states. Others, like you know, North Kordofan and Darfur, continue to witness fighting, and many fear that uh, the conflict actually in Darfur might reignite intertribal conflict. For instance, uh, civilians in Al Janina uh, stormed and looted the weapon storage facility of the police station. And some say that security services encourage this, um, but of course this is not confirmed. There were then signs the civilians were taking part in fighting against the RSF, but not necessarily in support of the army uh, at first. But soon after, other tribes retaliated in support of the RSF and it evolved into an all-out tribal conflict, which resulted in the death of almost 100 people and extensive damage to civilian infrastructure and homes in, in Al Janina. So this is just in West Darfur. This might happen in other cities and in other states. Um, is the fear, you know, uh, as the conflict um, prolongs, it might entangle uh, a number of other tribal militias. And as, as you say, Shawit, I mean, this is sort of one of the big fears that at the moment it's these two sides, the army and the RSF, battling each other. But if the fighting continues, could easily suck in others. You mentioned some of the Islamist militias connected to the NCP. Now, reports of them fighting alongside the army, plus there's various different former rebel groups. One well-known leader, Mina Manawi, has taken his forces back to Darfur. I mean, he'd signed a peace agreement a couple of years ago with the government, but how do you see this danger? I mean, I would say that the Juba peace uh, agreement signatories have shown great wisdom in not taking sides um, in this conflict. They were part of the government and the sovereign council after the October 2021 coup. And they have been in negotiations with the Forces for Freedom and Change Central Council, 
to form a civilian government before um, you know the conflict started on 15 April. But since the conflict started, they have reiterated that they will not take part. And like you said, uh, Mini Manawi has been yesterday or before yesterday taken out his forces from Khartoum to North Darfur. So they are not taking part in the conflict at this at this moment. But will they be forced to sites as the conflict is protracted? It's very hard to say. They seem to be determined not to get involved. Hopefully, uh, they'll stick to their positions. And what about politicians, civilian leaders in the FFC, the Forces of Freedom and Change, the main sort of umbrella group of civilians, and also the resistance committees that led the revolution against former Sudanese leader Omar al-Bashir some years ago. I mean, what are they doing? They've been very vocal in saying that, you know, the army is presenting itself as the government of Sudan. The army commander, uh, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, as the de facto head of state. But, you know, civilians have been highlighting that the army and the RSF removed a civilian transitional government in a military coup in October 2021. They actually cooperated in doing so. So when the conflict started on April 15, negotiations were underway to form a civilian government to whom the military coup leaders, both General Burhan and Ahmadi, would hand over political power to a civilian government headed by a civilian prime minister and a higher head of state also composed of uh, civilians. So civilians have been trying to highlight that the military, the army, is not the legitimate government. And they're really worried that ceasefire negotiations and the peace talks that follow are going to basically lead to a power sharing agreement between the army and the RSF. And it would continue to derail the negotiations that were ongoing prior to the conflict to form a civilian government. So this has been the greatest worry for civilians, obviously, in addition to the a complete carnage that we're seeing in Khartoum and elsewhere in Sudan. And Shewit, you know very well the perspectives from other African capitals, some of whom have also sort of mediated in Sudan's transition before the fighting started. So some of Sudan's neighbours, the African Union, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, IGAD, the sub-regional bloc. What are people saying in other African capitals about the Jeddah talks? Well, like you said, the Saudi-US-led talks um, are basically about ceasefire, and they may soon sign an agreement, particularly, you know, to allow humanitarian aid to flow in. Uh, but adhering to a permanent ceasefire seems very unlikely. Uh, the big question is whether another ceasefire agreement would lead to, you know, an agreement on certain parameters for monitoring um, the ceasefire. But we also uh, you know, hope that the JITA talks will lead to more substantive peace negotiations and uh, a permanent ceasefire. But this seems to be off the table. This was confirmed by uh, General Burhan, Special Envoy, Ambassador Al-Hajj, who visited Juba, the South Sudanese capital, a few days ago. He said that Jeddah pre-negotiation talks are purely humanitarian in nature and not about a political settlement. He also said that the Judah talks would not interfere with the EGAD-led mediation process, which President uh, Kira of South Sudan is leading. 
this has made it clear that at least the army prefers South Sudan to mediate any peace talks rather than the Saudis or the U.S. Why would uh, Al-Burhan, why would the army want South Sudan to lead the mediation instead of the U.S. and Saudi? Well, it's a question of whether they really want to sit for negotiations to begin with. The army has reiterated that the conflict is an internal matter to be resolved by completely dismantling the RSF. It has declared the paramilitary force as a rebel group fighting the state and ordered its total dissolution and the arrest of its leaders, you know, Hemeti and others. For the army, the only acceptable end to the conflict is the total defeat of the RSF. For weeks, uh, any form of negotiation that breathes life to the RSF has been unacceptable to the army. And, you know, any negotiation means they have to go back to negotiating the status of the RSF in a political process. And this is not what they want, really. And the RSF, obviously, you know, this conflict has become existential for them. You know, the only options being either to have total victory against the army or maintain a, a long enough stalemate to sit for political negotiations. The RSF has proven it will go to great lengths to fight for its survival, including pulling most of its troops from around the country to Khartoum. You know, the RSF has been more open to mediation efforts because any return to their negotiating table that will not only restore its legitimacy, but also ensure, you know, Hemeti will continue to play a key role in transition related political negotiations going forward. And so, shall we? What well, we're about a month into the war and the calculations seem largely the same. Do you think as fighting goes on, I mean, is there anything that could change their incentives? Is it likely that weapons on one side will dry up or could they run into problems of, of resupply and that might change their calculations? There are rumours that both groups are getting support from outside. Both groups are accusing different parties outside of Sudan saying that, you know, they're getting support, military and political support from outside of Sudan, both from non-state actors, but also from countries, particularly neighboring countries. But, um, I mean, it has been imposed for us to verify. What's certain is that any form of outside support, any support from within Sudan, from tribal militias or armed groups, if they choose to get involved, will only extend the conflict and the suffering of civilians in Khartoum and elsewhere. So until both sides believe they're not going to have internal and external political or military support, I don't think they will even consider sitting for serious uh, peace negotiations. Shiwi, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Richard, for having me. So we're going to talk now to Alan Boswell, Crisis Group's Horn of Africa director. Alan also hosts our sister podcast, The Horn. Alan, welcome back on. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me back on. So we've heard a bit from Shoit how people in Sudan and elsewhere see the talks in Jeddah. But do you want to say a little bit about what's happening in those talks? I mean, to the extent that we know. Sure. Well, the Saudis and the Americans put out a statement saying that talks began on the 6th of May, that was Saturday, and we had a delegation go from both sides, and it is a Saudi and American 
affair. Um, obviously, there was a lot of speculation, um, which we've talked about on the podcast since this conflict broke out, that it would be the Americans and Saudis as the main power brokers. And that is how it's played out. But it's interesting. I think many thought there would at least be more representation of other actors, either Sudanese or external actors, African actors um, from the beginning. And and that uh, really hasn't taken place. It's also interesting that it's no longer under the auspices of the Quad, which was the US, UK, Saudis and Emiratis, but is just the Saudis and Americans. Alan, do we know who the army, who Borhan and Hameti, who they've sent to the talks? I mean, what sort of level are we talking about? From our understanding, the army did not send a very senior delegation in terms of top generals below Burhan. Hemeti has, you know, members essentially of his of his family um, there at the talks as well. So it doesn't necessarily look like a delegation that would broker a major political deal, at least on the side of the army. And that goes in line with what the army has been saying, which is that they've been resisting any talks on actual political issues. They continue to say they want to defeat the RSF, which they now declare a rebel group militarily. And they've said that the purpose of these talks are only for humanitarian truce, humanitarian issues thus far. And Alan, so you mentioned it's just the two representatives of the armed factions, right? the army and the RSF that are there. And as we heard from Shewit, some consternation, concern in Sudan in particular, that it is sort of once again, these two generals that have caused so many problems that Many Sudanese, particularly Sudanese politicians, civilians say, you know, these guys were empowered over the transition. They then refused to hand over power, went to war with one another. And it's again, those two at the table and no one else. And on the one hand, of course, there it is the two of them that have to stop fighting. And if we're only talking about humanitarian access, maybe that format has some logic. You know, on the other hand, it's easy to understand people's frustration. Yeah, as you point out, Richard, these are thorny issues that I think we'll be grappling with for quite some time on Sudan. You know, Sudanese are rightly angry that it's just these two at the talks, but you can see how it happened as well in as much as the the Saudis and Americans were, you know, twisting a lot of arms to even get the parties to agree to send delegations to Jeddah. There was a fair amount of competition among externals as to who would mediate the talks. A political agenda isn't even on the table yet. But I think the fear of Sudanese, the fear of other uh, regional actors and, and diplomats who are outside this process, you know, whom we talk to, is that these negotiations, these tracks, uh, diplomatic tracks, have a way of becoming quite sticky. And I think the fear is that, you know, it, it might never look opportune in a way to broaden this out if the focus continues to be on how to stop the fighting primarily. And then we don't know sort of what the terms would be of getting the two sides to eventually stop fighting. So I think the concerns are legitimate. I think there needs to be a lot of thought given and I think more clarity about how a process between these two, even if just on humanitarian ceasefire questions, we would like to see, you know, uh, Sudanese civilians, Sudanese uh, political actors as part of that process as well, because they could also play an important role as, you know, ceasefire monitors. So I think to the degree that there's already frustration about a diplomatic track that's only less than a week old, um, I think most of the frustration is on this idea that this is a very limited set of actors around the table. And I think people understand why, but they just want to know, you know, when and how it, it might be expanded. So we heard Victoria Newland, US Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs up top, 
But broadly speaking, what does the U.S. say in response to that criticism? So what we're hearing out of Washington is that this mediation, the talks so far in Jeddah, which of course are not even weeks old yet, right now the focus is on getting something of a declaration of principles, primarily on humanitarian, you know, basically on allowing humanitarian access, as well as basic security protocol for either a full ceasefire or de-escalation zones, some ways of sort of creating safe zones as well. And then the idea seems to be to then once you have that in hand, be able to broaden talks, uh, both with Sudanese actors bringing in civilians, as well as including more regional, international actors as well. And, you know, it looks most likely like handing off to the, the trilateral mechanism, which was the United Nations, the African Union, and EGAD, the Regional Horn of Africa bloc, which has been the sort of multilateral uh, mechanism that's been there on Sudan over the past year. But I think even if the US and Saudis more or less hand off this process more formally to broader talks. I think, you know, we would expect to probably see them continue to play major power broker roles behind the scenes. And Alan, I mean, one issue is the Saudis and the US handing over to other mediators and sort of playing this more behind the scene roles that you talk about. Although the US says that's what it intends. We don't really know how, how Riyadh feels about that. But I guess the other big question is that, you know, the US talks a lot about the importance of Sudan returning to civilian rule. But we don't really know what Riyadh thinks of that either, right? And we don't know after everything that's happened over the last few weeks, what Riyadh or you know, indeed other Arab capitals feel about the, the feasibility, the wisdom of handing over two civilians in Khartoum. Yeah, you know, we've had discussions with them in Riyadh. Actually, in just weeks leading up to this conflict, they they mentioned to us they were very worried about the risk of exactly this civil war between these two sides. They stressed over and over again their support for a transition um, to civilian rule, for their support for this framework agreement in December, which laid that out. But obviously, things are changing with this conflict. Um, it looks to a lot of Sudanese and to a lot of outsiders that this conflict you know, exactly proves that these two military actors, neither of them are suitable really to be in charge in Sudan. We don't know quite how it looks in the Gulf. Um, obviously, this conflict did break out in the context of attempting to negotiate a return to civilian rule. Um, so you could also imagine there being essentially critics of that entire process who think that maybe pushing for that entire track itself was a mistake. So I think you know, among the things that we need to track and watch, it's how do golf actors, you know, I think especially the Saudis, really view this whole transition to civilian rule now that, you know, now that the country's fallen into civil war. And the Saudis have really played this quite a neutral role. They brought the two parties together with the US. Two, you know, close, you talked about the Emiratis and the Egyptians, you know, traditionally very close Saudi partners. And yet, you know, those are arguably the two governments, the two states, that people are most worried about potentially weighing in. So far, they haven't seemed to have done that, right? I mean, is that generally your sense as well? The sense is that we haven't seen major external intervention that has really tipped the scales massively on either side, or that would sort of break the seal in terms of major external intervention that might, you know, sort of legitimize um, other actors feeling like they can come in as well. Um, I think we should be careful how we loop the different actors together, for sure, the Egyptians are very firmly in the Burhan camp. That's not to say they don't have, you know, some concerns about Burhan's ties 
to sort of ex-Bashir officials to um, some Islamist elements in in the army, but they're clearly on that side. I mean, the, the Emiratis continue to stress that they have ties to both men, just like the Saudis do. It's just that the Emiratis were considered the closest to Hemeti of any external actors, um, both with sort of political ties, but also commercial ties. A lot of his gold goes through the UAE. Some of his sort of communications apparatus is in the UAE as well. But it's unclear exactly how much the Emiratis would back him vis-a-vis the, the army itself. Um, you know, and they also, the Emiratis also struck deals with, with the military during this transition as well. Why do you think that Egypt has been willing to overlook so many, as you say, Bashir-era Islamists, people linked to the Muslim Brotherhood, which Egypt views as a major threat in the region? Why do you think Egypt has been ready to overlook that with the Sudanese army? Obviously, Egypt is is run by, you know, the an Egyptian military institution as well. And I think they see a Sudanese counterpart that he can work with on the other side. And that's also in the context of having had very poor relations with Bashir. I think you can also see coming from a military standpoint, sort of old institutional standpoint, why, you know, you would uh, lean towards the army if you're Cairo versus versus RSF, which in many ways sort of runs counter to the entire military culture. And many Sudanese officers have been trained by Egypt. When asked this question directly, Egyptian officials will often say, will often downplay the Islamist element in the military, um, which, which, by the way, is something that not only Cairo does, but some others do as well. They say that this whole Islamist line is simplifying matters and that the army itself was often uncomfortable with the Bashir regime um, and that the Islamist narrative has, you know, essentially been utilized by the political opposition and by Hemeti um, in an attempt to curry favor with outside Western actors. And the other thing they say is that basically they killed the Muslim Brotherhood movement, they killed the Islamist movement, and they just don't fear it in the same way. And, you know, there might be individuals, but the movement is no longer something to really be afraid of. Um, but, but, but perhaps another way of looking at it, which they haven't said to us directly, you know, is that if you do fear... You know, is e- even if you do see those elements in the army, you know, better to be friends with the head of that army and try to control those elements than to make them the, your enemy. Though so, um, that sort of pragmatism from Cairo hasn't been quite so evident elsewhere in the region over recent years. Uh, no, but I, but I, I mean, but the, the the Egyptian side of this remains a bit of a riddle. I think I think they have a number of competing interests. In many ways, Burhan isn't a perfect fit for them uh, because of his alliance with some of these old Bashir officials. But I think you can see when looking at sort of how the civilian actors and the RSF and, and the other groups they had to work with, I think you can see how they sort of end up on the Burhan side, even, you know, even if it's not necessarily a perfect fit. But I don't think they had a perfect fit in Sudan. So, Alan, you talked actually this week on your podcast about Chad and Libya and the potential for their involvement or or the potential for armed groups that are there getting involved. So I don't want to go into that here. I'd refer people to that episode. But what I did want to talk about is another aspect of potential foreign involvement that people float, which is that of Ethiopia and Eritrea during the recent war between Ethiopia's federal government and Tigrayan rebels in Ethiopia's northern Tigray region, Sudan seized disputed territory on its border with Ethiopia in the Al-Fashiga region. And there's been some talk now of Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed from the Amhara. The Amhara is a community 
in a region neighbouring Tigray that fought with federal forces against the Tigrayans and that also farm uh, al-Fashaga. Some pressure reportedly from the Amhara on Abiy Ahmed to sort of take those disputed areas back. Now, Abiy so far has sensibly chosen not to. There is also rumours of ties between Hemeti and Eritrean President Isaias Afwerki, though it's, you know, it can be difficult to pin down the nature of some of these some of these relationships. Now, obviously, we need to be careful about not sounding alarmist. Again, as you say, so far, there hasn't been a lot of outside involvement. But how would you sort of assess dangers of those neighbours getting sucked in somehow? I think we need to be cautious, you know, in this regard, because we just we haven't seen major interventions into Sudan yet. I think the key thing here is that the longer this drags on, the higher the likelihood that we see some actors step in and that that sort of creates something like a free-for-all where everyone feels the need to do it. Like you said, you can imagine scenarios where Ethiopia steps in, either the federal government itself or the Amhara. Um, and we should stress here, you know, that, that Abiy and his relations with the Amhara are quite complicated in the aftermath of his peace agreement with the Tigrayans. So it's a different political context for Addis Ababa than when the initial border clashes over Fashika had taken place. Abiy and Burhan had recently had a bit of a year-long rapprochement. The other challenge for both Abiy and Eritrea as well um, is that if one of them steps in, the other uh, would, you know, have the legitimacy probably of of stepping in as well. And then that creates a sort of broader problem uh, for the horn. So I think there's been a cautious approach from regional actors not to step in yet. Um, I think they're monitoring the, the border. I think they don't want to be involved, but they obviously have their own security concerns about a failed state in Sudan, about opposition groups being able to mobilize on that side of the border. Isaias from Esmara is definitely watching what's happening just across his border in Kasala quite closely. Addis Ababa is watching quite closely what's happening on its border. But I think we're not at the stage yet where we've seen either step in. But I think once we see actors step in, you could imagine, you know, quite a few stepping in, at least maybe further across their border to to protect their own interests. Um, and then and then and then I think we just end up in a much messier situation moving ahead. So on diplomacy around the region, one thing that we floated is whether the US might appoint some sort of envoy in addition to its ambassador, to other officials that would reinforce sort of US diplomacy, could do some of the regional outreach around Sudan, which is you know, obviously very important. Do you want to say something about that? I think the way that we look at this primarily, and then we can get into some more details, is that now is a time that we think uh, it would be very wise for the US to beef up its diplomacy, um, given the scale of the crisis that has broken out. Um, and yes, um, appointing a special envoy based in the region, who's very senior, who can do high level in person shuttle diplomacy, um, would boost uh, the diplomacy. Um, and I think the other thing to mention is that actually, it's it's a historical exception at the moment that the US doesn't have a special envoy filling this role. The US had special envoys on Sudan and South Sudan for most of the past two decades, um, including John Danforth, Princeton Lyman, you know, some sort of titans of US diplomacy in this region. And the role they play, which which may not be always well understood, is that, of course, uh, ambassadors, you know, are based in the countries themselves, but are not as able to do the sort of shuttle regional diplomacy. And it's been the case on Sudan and South Sudan for a number of years, but I think is becoming even more true on Sudan right now that actually, it's a number of these um, external actors and, and sort of coordinating and engaging and 
talking to everyone and and trying to get everyone on the same page. You know, that's a very critical part of the job um, um, in getting peace process to move forward, but also trying to prevent, um, you know, sort of many people intervening in conflicts and making them even more difficult to resolve. So again, I think the way that we look at it is now would be a good time to beef up that diplomacy have another senior person on this file full-time in the region, you know, and, and it's hard to see how that would hurt anything. What do you make of the idea of sanctioning the two men, trying to get at their, you mentioned Hemeti's assets in in the Emirates. Sudan has been under sanctions for a long time, of course, and what the military-owned businesses have largely thrived despite sanctions. But I mean, do you think that's a way to change their incentives at all? So I don't want to dismiss all the sanctions talk uh, just for this reason. But I think in terms of actions that are likely to influence the two main protagonists right now, it's hard to see how sanctions or threat of sanctions are going to play massively into their calculations at a moment that they're still involved in what's an existential fight in Khartoum. When we've seen sanctions or, or even sanctions threats prove effective, it's tended to be in a sort of longer drawn out negotiation process in which there are key sort of sticking points that the parties are having a hard time getting through. And there's a key certain junctures where, where extra pressure needs to be put. Um, and sometimes the sort of threat of sanctions on the margins of that can help, which is not the situation here. I do think there's been quite a lot of talk of how to ultimately squeeze these two different actors to, for instance, relinquish control to civilian rule at some point, which would be further down the line. I think the problem with that is that the U.S. could sanction these two, for instance, but if their assets are sitting in the in the Gulf, if Hemeti's assets are, you know, sitting a lot of them in the UAE, and if the UAE, for instance, is not keen to actually apply those sanctions, if the UAE has not been keen to apply U.S. sanctions on Russia as it stands, you know, why would they necessarily listen to the U.S. on Sudan, which they, you know, very much feel is, is, is part of their rightful regional orbit? So sanctions might be an idea, in other words, but Western sanctions in themselves won't cut it without buy-in from others from the Gulf. Yeah, you know, I think what we need to remember is the ultimate leverage over these actors are not in the West. It really does look like in the Arab Gulf states, that is where a lot of the political leverage, where a lot of the commercial leverage over these two are. Ultimately, if sanctions are going to be effective at some point, and if that is used as a tool, you would have to convince the Gulf actors that these could be effective. Um, and that'll involve just really intensive diplomacy on the US. I'm not sure it has much of a chance of success, but I think it, it would have to involve convincing those actors, you know, that this is actually a tool to help stabilize Sudan. And uh, Alan, last time you and Shawit were on, which was, uh, what, three weeks ago now, I mean, we were just a week into the fighting, we're now a bit further in coming on for a month. I mean, it does look tragically as though it has a lot of the makings of a long war, the two sides relatively evenly matched. It doesn't seem like the army is going to be able to oust the RSF from sort of its fairly entrenched positions in the capital, but nor does it look as though uh, Hameti is is going to prevail. Neither side shows much sign of compromise. Both seem to view it as, as existential and both probably still able to resupply. Yeah, I... I think the scenarios are looking quite grim as we enter, you know, a now a weeks long conflict. The signs are definitely there for a protracted war in Sudan. Um, and, you know, that's, that's very scary because although this conflict thus far has very much, you know, been 
surprisingly um, so, uh, just between these two main actors primarily, um, and, and primarily focused on Khartoum, it's just almost impossible to imagine how any sort of prolonged conflict between these two will not end up getting very messy in the rest of Sudan. You know, there are very many armed groups in Sudan, um, both political, rebel, ex-rebel, community, tribal groups. For the most part, they've all rejected this conflict. They've stood on the sidelines. Um, they realize this is destructive. But, you know, what, if it sets in as the new normal and people lose hope sort of in the prospects of ending this anytime soon, you would imagine that people would start to reorient around this new political landscape. You'd have people choosing sides either for local reasons or because, you know, they're essentially pressured into doing it by whichever side is dominant in their respective areas. Um, so that just starts to look quite scary. I think in terms of the battlefield dynamics, you know, obviously the Sudanese army especially was hoping that its supremacy in the air, that its hardware, that its more obvious foreign friends would give it the advantage. But we've seen that the RSF, many might consider it the underdog, but there's there's also a reason that they have risen to such power in Sudan. They've proven innovative, they've proven nimble. And they have really continued to flood Khartoum with fighters to to be very hard to push out. Um, and they've really entrenched themselves in Khartoum, continued to control much, if not most, of the capital. And so I think in the more optimistic scenarios that people could conjure, in which those who thought it'd be better if the army came out on top, those scenarios are not looking very likely right now. And so, you know, the hope would be that eventually we end up in a, in a place where the army will sort of back down from from some of these initial preconditions, but we just haven't seen a sign of that yet. So it's very capital focused. It's, you know, it's between two sides of the government and we haven't seen major foreign involvement yet, but I think this is, you know, we're, we're looking at the beginnings of something that is going to be a big problem for the broader region, um, for North Africa, Central Africa, Horn of Africa, Red Sea, and, um, and that could go on for a very long time if we somehow don't get some momentum in some of these diplomatic tracks. Alan, thanks so much for coming on again. Thanks, Richard. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on the evolving crisis in Sudan on our website, crisisgroup.org. You should also check out that podcast episode of The Horn this week, which looks at the rapid support forces and Hermeti's background and also ties into Libya and uh, Chad. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schau. And thanks, as ever, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org or write to me directly at at crisisgroup.org if you have any questions, suggestions or concerns. Say something nice about us. Leave us a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts if you like the show. Next week, I'm hoping we're going to do an episode on Saudi Arabia's foreign policy, looking at the China brokered deal with Iran, looking at normalization with Damascus, with the Syrian government Bashar al-Assad, and looking at its mediation role in Sudan. So I very much hope that you'll join us again for that.